This is the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So our passage for tonight is the beginning of what's Jesus' longest piece of uninterrupted teaching in the whole book of Mark, um, which, if you've noticed in the book of Mark, isn't actually too hard to do. Um, Mark is very quick with his pace. He's bouncing around back and forth from moment to moment. Uh, he's very brief, so winning longest piece of teaching in the book of Mark is like uh, the world's fastest man running in a high school track meet. Um, no competition, and therefore not much of an achievement. But Mark's slowing down at this point in our story for a specific purpose. It signals to us that we're an important life, important moment in the life of Jesus. In many ways, this chapter, chapter 13, is sort of a bridge passage between sort of the public ministry of Jesus. Um, as we've seen previously, that, that kind of peaks, culminates with uh, the conflict we read in the temple. Um, so that's a bridge between his ministry and his passion, his judgment and his death on the cross. So this chapter, and particularly our passage today, begins with the pronouncement of judgment on Israel because they've lost their way. It should be no surprise if we've read the previous, previous chapters. Jesus tossing things around in the temple and teaching the Pharisees and putting them in their place. This shouldn't seem as a shock to us. Um, and actually, it's not much of a shock to the disciples either. Um, when they come to Jesus, they're not asking questions about, like, how can you say that? Really, the temple? Are you sure? They hear Jesus' statement, the statement of judgment upon Israel for 
rejecting God, rejecting his Messiah, choosing their own self-made religion, trusting in their own piety and goodness. They hear these words of judgment for those very reasons, and they know what we know standing here, that this wouldn't be a surprise. They get this, but they don't exactly understand what's going on. Typical, it seems, of the disciples, but often typical of us in life, too, as we approach God's word. For them, for first century Jews, the destruction of the temple um, was a signal that the kingdom of God was right around the corner. The temple is where God dwelled, so if the temple is no longer there, then God must be coming soon to inaugurate his kingdom. And if we remember Jesus' first words in the book of Mark, Behold, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe, makes sense. They've been listening. They think that the Messiah soon will rule and reign over them shortly after the temple destruction. So, we look at Andrew, we look at Peter and James and John, and we have some first century doomsday preppers right here for us. They're coming to Jesus asking, again, not how could this be, but how can we best prepare? How can we be ready? They ask looking for signs, for prophecy about when the end of time would happen and how they would know. Questions that have been asked by people for millennia after them, actually, too. They're not the only ones. Questions we ourselves may have asked or pondered from time to time. So this passage is about the end. The end of time. Uh, but Jesus' answer isn't the prophecy that they were looking for. It's not about how we can put together the end times puzzle and figure out how, when, where, and who will be involved. Instead, Jesus is telling the disciples, instructing us, that all of this will happen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Jesus is telling the disciples that there are things that will happen in their lifetime to be sure, they may look like the end, but they're not going to mean what they think it means. The temple will be destroyed. That happens. There are wars and rumors about wars, earthquakes, famine. And on top of that, we read of coming persecution. All things that happen have continued to happen and are happening right now this day. But they don't mean that the end Again, it's just around the corner. Here's Jesus subverting expectations once again. And thank God he does because Jesus' words are prophecy about the end, but they're also counsel on how his people, how we are to conduct ourselves when he's gone while madness is swirling about around them. Because Jesus' words are trustworthy. These things happen and are still happening. They are then great words of comfort and consolation to us. Because at the end of the day, with all of these things that are happening that Jesus is predicting, what underpins all of this is God's sovereignty and his care for his people. And God's sovereignty radically changes everything. In our hearts and in our lives, understanding and living in the sovereignty of God completely transforms how we think about our lives, but as we're looking at our passage, completely 
transforms how we think about Christ's words here. Because at first glance, what Jesus is saying doesn't sound too great, does it? It doesn't sound good at all. On top of all the danger that lies ahead, Jesus also informs his disciples of the upends their expectations of the immediacy of God's kingdom and says, guys, you're just going to have to wait. Verse 7, he says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Fellas, you're going to have to wait. My church, you're going to have to wait. Which is awful because we hate waiting. Microwaves exist because we hate to wait. Companies like Amazon monetize this fact, and now you're willing to pay just a little bit extra so you can get your package same day or the next day. Neuroscientists and psychologists have actually discovered that our fast-paced culture, you know, which provides immediacy, should alleviate our hatred of waiting or the fact that we have to wait for anything, has actually made things worse because our bodies have apparently an internal timer. And when we wait for too long, it's a sign that danger is probably around the corner. So we think we've been waiting for four minutes. For 10 minutes, we've only been waiting for four minutes. And now with an expectation that everything should happen right now, right when I want it to, our bodies actually think that 50 minutes have passed by when we've been waiting for 50 seconds. Again, we hate waiting. We get angry. We get frustrated. And we even get upset and anxious about why our expectations have not been met. And this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is beginning to warn his disciples about in this passage. The anxiety caused by their own expectations, expectations of how God's faithfulness and covenant promises would be fulfilled in their lives. Expectations that had been shaped not by everything that they had seen and heard from Jesus thus far, but expectations shaped by their own hearts. Jesus knows this, which is why this is an incredibly pastoral teaching of Jesus. He knows this. And so he answers their, the disciples' questions about the coming of the end with a warning. Two warnings, actually. If we continue through this chapter, he does it several other times. But first warning is in verse 5. He, see, he says, see that no one leads you astray. And in verse 9, he says, be on your guard. See that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard because there is danger in the waiting. And Jesus lists two of those specific dangers in our passage. If the danger of deception in verses 5 through 8, and the second danger is in verses 9 through 13, and it's the danger of suffering. The danger of deception. In verse 6, Jesus says, Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Many will come bearing the name of Christ, bearing the name of Messiah, saying, I am your Savior, I am your rescue, I am your present help in times of trouble. So watch out. Watch out for those. In verses 9, 11, 12 and 13, Jesus describes the various sufferings that will come upon his chosen people. Arrest, betrayal, hatred, and death. 
We're called to wait, but there's danger in the waiting. So our God thankfully warns us of the danger of these hardships. If you take a second and look at these hardships, um, notice how Jesus breaks them up. They're almost broken up into two sorts of sections. Each little group of verses is describing a particular kind of harm, different kinds of harm and dangers that lay before Christ's people in the time when he is gone. The first section we could call common because they're shared by everyone. Suffering on account of war and the worry about when wars will take place and how they'll shape society and history have always been present. Um, The Old Testament, it's what a lot of the prophets are about. Judgment's coming, war is coming, what will we do? The New Testament, Jesus is talking about it right here. It's the history of us until now. We still worry and have anxiety about these things. Uh, These calamities that end peace and prosperity, uh, and it results in the end of many lives, have caused millions of people to wonder if they're actually signals of the end of everything. In Jesus' words, again, he knows. He knows. That's such a blessing, such a comfort. He knows that the disciples, that Israel, that his church would and did experience these things. He says, don't be alarmed. Don't trust the false messiahs who appear when these things happen. Don't be led astray by large groups of people who get caught up in the frenzy and in the panic. Don't misinterpret the significance of what is going on around you. Don't read into it too much. They have to happen. Jesus says they have to happen. It's one commentator writes, these developments fall within the sovereign purposes of God who controls the historical destinies of the nations. These things must happen, but they do not signify the end or even that the end is near. So we have no need to be alarmed. All of these things are happening within God's control. But what about the second grouping of described hardships. Do these also fall within the bounds of God's sovereign plan? You're all probably thinking, yes, of course, this is what you've been saying the whole time. God is sovereign. This is about God's sovereignty. It underpins the whole thing. So of course, the answer is yes to your question, or yes, I've read my Bible. I know this is true. But it's difficult for us To hear Jesus say that not only will you experience certain trials and anxieties with the rest of humanity, but there are hardships that you will suffer specifically because you are mine. To us, that might seem unjust, unloving, uncaring that Jesus would call us to himself, offer us life and salvation forever and ever. And then once we get wrapped up in all of it, once we decide that's the way, what we, the way that we want to go, what we end up finding is that as his people will actually suffer terrible things, things that the ungodly are exempt from. That doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. And I'm sure the disciples 
who again at this time are still trying to wrap their heads around that their expectation of a great and powerful Jesus who would lead Israel to greatness were being dashed right before them, they must have been shocked and startled by these words. I'm sure that they were surprised that instead of triumph, good health, prosperity, stability, and the life they had always dreamt of that had captivated their nation's entire imagination, that those wouldn't come true. And instead, they would find suffering and pain. And like them, on some level, if not shocked, deep in your hearts, you might wonder how that could be as well. We haven't gotten to this point in the story yet, but the disciples would soon witness and understand what you and I already know. That Christ has not called us to anything that does not belong to him. Christ does not call us to anything that does not belong to him. Life belongs to him. Presence with God, our Father, everlasting, belongs to him. Glory belongs to him. He shares that with us. That's insane. Still can't wrap my mind around that one. All things belong to him. So endure hatred because of Jesus. Experience pain because Specifically, I belong to him? Why, of course. Because that's what Christ did for us. Jesus' own experience actually becomes the prototype for our lives. That's been the story of his church from day one. Praise be to God, but we haven't really gotten to see that in our lives and in our specific worlds yet, have we? Judges being dragged in front of judges and kings and tribunals all because we belong to Jesus. But in some way, we're starting to see what might be beginnings of those, some, those things. It was the religious, those who supposedly were living and acting in the name of God who delivered up Jesus to be killed, who arrested him, who shouted crucify him, who hated him. And today, we sometimes see that, that there are those who claim Christ but will mock and deride us and those of us who hold faithfully to what God has said in his word. Christ was delivered to the Romans to be killed and it was the Romans who were persecuting the original readers of Mark's gospel. We don't suffer yet like they did, let's make that clear, or like so many people around the world do for the name of Christ, but we too are often charged and found guilty in the court of public opinion, aren't we? That's a bit new for us. It's a bit disconcerting for us. What are we going to do? Well, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Jesus says, be on your guard. See that we are not led astray, not only by false messiahs, but that we're not led astray, led to divert our eyes away from Christ in the midst of hardships. He's asking us to be strong, to be watchful, to keep our eyes and our ears open. When he calls us to watch, to make sure no one leads us astray, it's not a position of fear. 
It's not a position of offensive opposition. We're not going on the attack. It is also not a call to trust in our own strength or in our ability to endure. It's an exhortation, a reminder, a blessed and gracious encouragement from our Lord to trust. Because waiting patiently and enduring till the end, like Jesus says in verse 13, the one who endures in the end will be saved. It's only possible if we have faith in God's power and trust in his covenant promises. This is not salvation by works. We do not run the race trusting that we'll make it across every ditch and hill and mountain. We know that God will carry us. Because is he not the God who made heaven and earth? Is he not the God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt? Is he not the one who gave them land of plenty in Canaan? Yeah, he is. And it's all here for us to read and be refreshed and encouraged by. He's the God who brought his people out of exile. The God who, according to his promise, came as one of us, dwelt with us, taught us, lived for us, died for us, is risen for us, and will come again for us. He's the God who's been completely in control beyond forever, and who has been unendingly patient with his people despite our shortcomings time and time again. He has endured our sin, especially when he took it upon himself on the cross. So don't be mistaken, don't be tempted in thinking that God has asked too much of us in asking us to wait patiently to lean on Him in times of worrying and suffering. Because in His unmatched work, He has provided, He has made clear, He has paved the road of pilgrimage, so to speak, for which we are to walk on. He's made it clear. He's made it open. (laughs) He's given us open access through this man, through Jesus, the Son of God. He doesn't ask too much of us. In fact, he hasn't asked anything of us that he hasn't already done himself. And I, I just love this final sentence of uh, verse 8 where Jesus, in talking about these things, uses an illustration and he compares them to birth pains, labor pains. Um, it's the same language that Paul later echoes uh, in Romans chapter 8 when he says all of, the, all of creation is groaning with the pains of labor as it awaits the future glory of God's kingdom. Um, Some of you are either um, blessed with the dignity to have already experienced these kinds of pains, um, or you've been specifically designed by God to experience these pains. Um, So you know, or Lord willing will know, what Jesus and Paul are talking about here. Um. And guys, no matter how hard your wife may squeeze your hand during childbirth, you don't get to say anything about this. We know nothing. Um, But this presence of pain doesn't mean that the baby that you've eagerly been expecting and awaiting for nine months is about to be in your lap in mere seconds. Labor, even if it's relatively quick, is still a long, drawn-out process. It is not 
immediate. You don't know how long it will be. You only know that it's going to hurt. But here's what you do know. That on the other end of labor, of all that pain, of all that discomfort, that once you've overcome what might be the worst pain in your life, you get to hold that beautiful child you've waited so long to meet. Likewise, we don't know how long we'll be called to wait upon the Lord, how long we'll have to wait and trust, but just like how the beauty of a newborn child makes all the pain and terror of labor worth it, knowing that on the other end of our pain and suffering on this earth, the awesome glory and splendor of God's eternal presence and kingdom waits for us by the grace of God, radically transforms our view of our time here on earth. It's so good that the goodness we experience here is just a little taste, a little appetizer, a little sample. It's so good that all those other things, totally worth it, completely nothing in comparison to what's waiting for us. Christ knew that. The disciples came to know that. Read the stories of the martyrs throughout the history of the church. They testify to that over and over again. It's the same story. You can't threaten us with our lives. Because when we lose that, we really gain everything. So now, we wait. We trust. We keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And we go and we preach the gospel wherever we go. So we're people who who wait. We're people who suffer in the waiting. Who expect glory at the end of the pain and the suffering and the wait. But in the meantime, we're also people who have been given a mission. Something to do. Verse 10 and 11, Jesus says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, which you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. On the surface, it seems that those who will oppose the gospel of Jesus are winning as they seek to suppress the message by oppressing the messengers. But here's the thing. Nothing stops the kingdom of God. Hatred and persecution will never silence our testimony, no matter what. It hasn't yet. It's not going to anytime soon. Through the suffering of our brothers and sisters, through the apostles, through the church, all the way up until today, the kingdom of God has silently advanced everywhere. This is a really amazing thing, the really subversive thing, the thing that just is amazing about the kingdom of God besides all the other stuff that makes it amazing too, because those things are infinite. But the world operates under this assumption that if you beat the hope out of a people, you see his enemies and stamp out their message and testimony, it will die away or die out with them. That's the story of kings. That's the story of tyrants, of dictators, warlords. It's the story of wicked people. Here's the thing, on some level, they're kind of right. If you're an evil person, you want to consolidate power for yourself, 
It's not a bad way to do it, I guess, if you just believe utility is all that matters. Um, Thankfully, we don't believe that. And here's what God does when that happens with his church, with his kingdom, with his people. It's a victory. It's a victory. He wins. Because God doesn't play by the set of rules that the people of the world have. And they don't know that. So they're causing their own demise. This is absolutely brilliant. I mean, by destroying the people of Jesus, what Jesus is predicting, and go read through Acts, it happens constantly again and again. By trying to destroy the people of Jesus, they bring them to trial. There are lots of people at trial. They throw them in prison. There are lots of people in prison. They bring them to Rome, the capital of the world, the biggest city on earth at that time. There are lots of people there. They murder them. And what they've done is they've actually caused more people, themselves, their courts included, their allies, to hear about the good news of Jesus. They think they're winning, but they're shooting themselves in the foot because they can't see the amazing thing that God is doing. Think of Acts 16, for instance. Paul and the Philippian jailer. Paul and Barnabas, they're in prison for preaching the gospel. All the prisoners hear about the glory of God because Paul and Barnabas are singing all night long. Unending testimony all night long. There's the earthquake. Lots of things happen. At the end of the day, this jailer and his whole family are baptized in the name of Jesus. Because Paul and Barnabas had been arrested because of what many would perceive as a loss. They lost. But God's kingdom goes forth, goes further. Jesus is telling his disciples, you're going to stand in the presence of powerful, intelligent, and mighty people who hate you because you're mine. And what's going to happen is that many more people are going to have to reckon with who I am and many more people are going to come to be my people as well. Once again here, here's God at it again, taking what others have meant for evil and redeeming it for good, for glory. Jesus is telling the disciples this and he's comforting us, teaching us, as well, that not only will God be your sovereign strength in your own suffering so that you can endure, but He's going to speak for you in the time when you're called to testify and defend Him. Yet another anxiety that Jesus, full of gentle and pastoral guidance in this passage, says He will take care of by His power, by His Spirit. The Spirit of God will fill your heart and mouth with words. Don't be alarmed. Don't worry. He did it for Moses. He did it for Jeremiah. He'll do it for you. He did it for the apostles. He's going to do it for us. Hope hope we can see how God's sovereignty underlies this whole passage. Christ can tell us not to be anxious about anything or to prepare for the end because God's hand guides it all. Jesus can tell us to wait and patiently endure suffering and violence and hatred because in the end, if all compares, 
to the inevitability of his kingdom and our life with him forever. It can't hold a candle to that. Jesus can also send us out into the world with his news to all people because of the Holy Spirit, the helper that he promised and gave to us, goes and speaks through us. This passage, like the rest of Scripture, is just about the activity of God working again and again through ordinary people. Jesus is not calling us in this past. Jesus is not just calling us in this passage to be faithful and obedient, but He's also giving us the reason for why we can be, for why we can bear our cross, for why we can evangelize in the midst of danger or ridicule or scorn. The reason for why we can become confident in our calling as his people. That reason is because it is the sovereign will of God. So go, be assured by Christ's words. Encourage one another in that assuredness. Know that as Christians, we're actually people of the end. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're hoping for. We wait for it. We long for it. Because when it comes, we'll find peace and rest in the loving arms of our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for his guidance, his pastoral wisdom, his heart for us, knowing that in the face of many dangers, toils, and snares, that our hearts may be filled with fear, may be filled with doubt, that we may be uneasy, that we may be shaken. But Jesus reminds us that all things belong to him. In him, all things hold together. That we have no need to fear, to be timid, because our Lord walks with us. May we trust in that fact, Lord. May we walk with each other in that same spirit that Christ gave to his apostles, that he's given to us. May we wait for the end with hope and with gladness, waiting for glory, knowing that nothing can ever take away our life for it is secure in you. We ask and pray this in your name. Amen.